he showed us that we were incapable of doing such a thing on our own. <laughs> humility, <laughs> humility came. Oh, my word. I don't know when I've ever felt so helpless. I had the education degree. I'd worked with kids. I love kids. I thought I understood children. I thought I was Wonder Woman mom. And I just found so much that I didn't know. And so when you find yourself going, hmm, I can't do this by myself, and you have a faith in God, you know where you have to go. Yeah. He was my all in all. He became the Lord of my life. We human beings were incapable of producing this uh, fruit that we so badly wanted to see. When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what he has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. My guest, Joan Benson, met her husband, David, when they were 15 and 16 years old, and they fell in love and they dreamed of a big family. But when infertility became their reality, they turned to adoption. Their first two adoptions, separate adoptions, were infants, their son, Shannon, and daughter, Christy. They later adopted two older sons in two separate adoptions. First was Larry and then Wiley. Joan's desire was to leave a legacy of love and compassion and trust. She imagined her and David growing old together, enjoying their grandchildren, watching their children work hard, be successful, and live healthy, well-adjusted lives. But those dreams would be severely challenged when Joan realizes that she did not have the skill set that the two oldest sons would require. Not even her devoted love could reach the painful places of trauma that both Larry and Wiley had experienced prior to being folded into Joan and David's family. Just when things couldn't be more crucial, the boys are struggling through their high school years. They have testosterone-infused determination and emotional issues heaped on top. The love of Joan's life, David, decides to leave the family for a younger woman. So much for the Christian family values that Joan had longed to give her children. This conversation is but a shadow of all that Joan has endured. And despite the complications and heartache, Joan fully supports adopting older children. So much has changed for the better when it comes to the emotional and mental needs of traumatized children. As you listen in, let your heart be reminded that we were once orphans ourselves, or maybe even after accepting Christ as our personal Savior, we still act from an orphaned heart. But as God's children, He is extravagantly, generously generous to us, and we can never go so far that His love can't or won't cover us. Joan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me because you have a lot of insight and some rich information for those who are either considering adopting older aged children or those who are in the middle of the challenges that you're going to talk about because you had adopted older children. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Sherry. It's my privilege. I am excited to share this type of info because 
for me, it encourages the heart. It gives people education on what to expect. And, and I feel like that lends itself to making a more healthy family, a more healthy experience. Give me a little bit about your story. I want to know what was life like before you adopted these older children? We had always wanted a big family. And once we got into the whole business of recognizing infertility, that it might not just happen for us, though we were still hoping it would, we were blessed by the adoption of our first infant. Okay, we went through an agency, and that was back when there were still babies that were adoptable in the U.S. much more readily. Yes, we'd had Roe versus Wade, but it was still new. So we adopted a baby boy and he was adorable and perfect in all ways, in our viewpoint. I can still remember at the adoption agency going in and they had this little doll baby laying in his crib and they said, um, or after we'd had a chance to hold him and talk to him, he said, okay, now do you want to go out and have some coffee or lunch and then come back and let us know your decision? I said, no, I just want to go home with him. We've right. been praying about having this little one join our family for months and months and months, which seemed like a lifetime. So that was baby one. And then as soon as we legally could, that means the adoption had gone through and the agency would permit us to file again. We uh, placed information saying we were wanting a baby too. So that happened to be our daughter <clears throat> and all was well. Okay. So when it came time for baby three, because we still wanted more children, we were told no, that we already had our two and there weren't enough babies to go around. And so we we're considering what else we were doing. We were part of the adoption agency process at that point. We were getting newsletters and all of that. And we received a newsletter that had a list of children that were older that needed homes. And we read their little biographies. And this one little guy kind of struck my heart. And it said that he had a strong faith, that he really believed in God. And once once we read through his little biography, even though it was very brief, we, we wanted to inquire further because we thought, well, if we were on the same page with that, that would make the transition into our home so much easier because we were a strong Christian family. And so we thought that would be easier to have him join us. He was 12 years old at the time. Larry was in a group home setting outside of Fort Worth, Texas. And so it was with a different agency that we would eventually work. Oh, we were so excited. I think that the thing that I remember so well about that whole process, the waiting process, <clears throat> was where's when you're waiting for an infant, the infant for the most part is not born. So it's not a real entity. And I can remember walking around the Thanksgiving before we received our first older adoptee. And that was the, the thought that there's a child out there that is going to be a part of our family and how desperately I wanted to get to know them and where were they and were they hurting and, you know, were they okay? Which all those mothering instincts were coming out in me. I, just yeah. like, I want them. I want them. <clears throat> so anyway, 
long story short, we hauled our two little ones that at that time uh, were about maybe 20 months and three. They were fairly close together, 21 months apart. We um, hauled them in a station wagon back when kids could lay in the back of the station wagon. We had toys and, and a bed made in the back end, and we rolled down to Texas, all the way from the Midwest of Kansas. And <clears throat> so when we got there to the group home, it was very interesting. We got to take him to um, the zoo that day and uh, spend time with him. And of course, all that's honeymoon stuff. I didn't know much about what that meant at the time, but everything was went rather idyllically. He knew who we were. We had sent letters and pictures and we knew who he was from the biographies and the conversations we'd had with the agency and pictures. You would just think we were just all going to get along beautifully and there would be no glitches. It was just all happy. There was a little bump in the road at the group home itself. There was a conversation with the group home parents and they didn't seem to be on the same page as the representative from the adoption agency. And I can remember some sort of whispering going on between the two of them. And um, like they didn't know if we knew everything that we needed to know. There was some sort of issue that hadn't come out. Who was speaking more for you? Was it the representative or was it the yes. home that was trying to get you to understand? More? The adoption agency, of course, were all about placing him. The group home people were looking at behavior and problems that they had faced. And I think they saw us as this couple with these two very young children. And I think there were some red flags Okay. There, but we didn't get to have that conversation with them. So we really didn't know what they were hubbubbing about. <laughs> and just to clarify, too, you spoke of a 12 year old as far as going. Is this the 12 year old? Is this Larry that you've gone down to Fort Worth to adopt? Yes. OK. All right. So yes. you've got the 20 month old, the three month old and Larry, the 12 year old. Three year old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Three year old. Sorry. Yes. Right. Three year old. Yeah. And so we loaded them all in the car and we were on our way back to Kansas. And there really was a honeymoon. Larry had been in uh, foster homes for three years. He was one of five children. His father had committed suicide when Larry was a little kid, maybe, I think he was maybe five. He knew about it, but we didn't know exactly what he knew about it at that time. A lot of his story, of course, unveiled over mm -hmm. the years many years, actually, until he was an adult. It wasn't until the older children had gotten in trouble with the law that the courts came in to investigate what was going on at home. And at that point, they found neglect and abuse. And the mother had become determinedly, in quotes, a hopeless alcoholic. And it wasn't until many years later when Larry would tell us, because when he was younger, he didn't want to talk anything about it, but that she would go off for days and just leave them there alone. We lived in the country outside of Lawrence, Kansas, uh, where the university is. So we enrolled him in the, the neighborhood school that we 
were fastened to geographically, and they were not equipped, I have to say. It was a small town. They weren't equipped for his learning problems, and they certainly didn't seem equipped with any of the rest of the emotional problems. So we did a lot of tutoring and things like that. But Larry was a non-reader at 12, unable to read. My three-year-old could read better than Larry could. We started from scratch with all of that. He had vision problems. He had emotional problems. And yet, those weren't totally surprising. I was a teacher, so I understood those learning gaps would be there. Our pediatrician told us at the time, Joan, if you and your husband are okay, psychologically, emotionally, the little kids will be okay, no matter what you go through. That came home to haunt me later on because at one point I was no longer okay. And I, uh, it became a load that I didn't know how I would get through. My husband was good at wrestling on the floor with the kids and he knew boys and Larry was very touch shy. I don't know what verbiage would best describe that. If you reached out to put your arm around him or put your arm on his shoulder, he would pull back as if he was not sure you were going to hurt him or give him love. So we saw a lot of that potential for abuse and neglect. And so when David would roughhouse with the kids, that was a fun, friendly way to touch without it being intimate. And he could handle that. So we found out that back rubs at nighttime, as we prayed and did the nighttime routines, that worked. That was a moment when he could receive touch in a positive way besides the rough housing. So my husband did the rough housing and I did the back tickling. <laughs> Do you think that's something across the board for when you're trying to blend a family as routine or it's just a small portion of it? A structure that's familiar and dependable means a lot, especially for kids who have had nothing, no structure and lack of dependability, and adults are not dependable. And so all of that needed to be built into his life because, honestly, when we brought him home, he had a toothbrush, one pair of jeans, and a couple shirts. That describes the totality of his existence, not because he needed clothes, but that kind of showed the fact that there wasn't anything in his life that gave him structure that he could depend on. So along with this, we also determined that there was an insatiable need that we couldn't fill, whether it was attention or whether it was stuff. You you would think a kid that had nothing would be really grateful when you gave him something. It didn't work that way with either of the kids. I'll go on to the next adoption and then we'll kind of lump them together. But There was this insatiability. It was like the hollow leg syndrome, like nothing was ever enough for those kids, whereas the little ones had the the joy of abundance from the time they were little. We were a middle-income family. My husband was a pilot, in fact, for major airlines, so we weren't hurting. We had parents that were giving, and so they were used to receiving nice presents and Christmas and all that. Well, the older boys weren't. So um, 
the little kids seemed grateful, which is just the opposite of what you'd think. And the older kids were always looking around for where's more. That's very interesting. Have you been able to tie that to anything in particular? Trauma, definitely. But that, yeah, that is completely opposite of what you would Mm -hmm. think. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really just, ex- yeah. E- yeah, explain that. But it was a from a was, parent's perspective. Yeah, I think and may, maybe it was because nobody had ever taught them to say thank you for anything, too. That makes sense. Gratitude, because that turned my that, whole depression is, around. And it is a learned behavior. I mean, I can remember how many times I give a little simple something to, you know, a cracker, whatever it was to the little kids and say, thank you. You train that. And the older kids didn't have that. Let me move on to the second one, because so much of this is integral to both adoptions and then the ultimate cataclysm of what it did to our family structure. And I guess the reason I feel passionate about sharing all this is because I have shared with other people who were about to embark on this journey, and I believe that there are things you could do that we were not equipped to do at that time. Some of it was because of the time period we were in, the lack of knowledge. So we had Larry. We were kind of in a honeymoon period, bumping along. Yes, we had some issues, but it wasn't anything major. It was just kid stuff, right? So we have a friend who's an attorney. We were really good friends. And he said, I know that you made this adoption with Larry. I have another 12-year-old boy here in my office, and I'd like you to consider having him as part of your family. So he told us a little bit about this child's story. We had been praying to enlarge our family. We had a big house that we had built with the intention of having a large family in a beautiful setting in the country. We had horses, we had dogs, we had all the things that kids would love to do. We even had uh, a tennis court built when we had the house built. So at that point, I think it was just a playground (laughs) where where the bikes and the trikes went, but uh, roller skating. We felt like we had a lot to give. So yes, we were open to another child. This young man's name was Wiley. He was also 12, and his profile looked completely different, except for two common themes. The dad died when he was very young, and dad was in the military, and he died when Wiley was about four or five years old, young kid. His mom then became an alcoholic. He was living with relatives because He and his mom were driving up from Texas, another Texas boy, oddly, and almost from the same area. They were driving up from Texas to Kansas to see relatives for Christmas, and she died in a motel and left this child all by himself. So the school and the counselors and the attorney and everybody described Wiley as emotion locked. So that was the best description we had. He didn't cry. He didn't laugh much. He didn't get angry. But um, I think he'd grieved so many losses that he probably just, it was safer not to feel. Mm-hmm. And so he was a very handsome young man, very cute boy. And he was not one to get in your face because he didn't show that kind of emotion. So in some ways, he was easier because he was not in your face about anything. But in other ways, he was harder because 
he uh, was a passive resistor. So the passive aggressive thing would come in. If he didn't want to do what you didn't want, what you told him to do, he would avoid. So we had one who was an actor outer and very much going to let you know everything that was going on. And another one that was more the quiet, silent type. However, he was also a wonderful pretender because we had an open house shortly after both the boys were in our family and people who came, this is, this is a really good part of the story because when people met our family, Wiley put on a beautiful show. I mean, he became Mr. Personable. He would give tours of our home with great elaborate descriptions of everything. And you would think he was just, altogether the best model child in the world. And um, that was his persona that he would present to people. And in my study about adopting older kids, there's very often, as I mentioned before, the honeymoon. And that kind of has, that's a similar theme as to what Wiley did when he met people. You don't want people to really get underneath that surface layer because there's too much pain under there. So in the honeymoon period, which is typically a year or can be even longer, things don't break out. We're still role-playing. We're still trying to be a part of the family and everybody's going to fit in because foster kids get used to being shifted around. If you act out, you're going to somebody else's house. And so you try to make that work as long as you can. So all of a sudden, we're into year two, and we're also starting with hormones. We're becoming young teens, and everything hits the fan, so to speak, all at once. So we had a lot of issues rising and a lot of rebellion, and um, it, it was very difficult. I can remember one night at dinner time. This was when, when I was starting to break. My husband was a pilot, as I mentioned. And so at that particular time, he'd taken a, a better pilot's fly with routes. They get more pay if they fly at night. They get more pay if they fly to South America than they do if they're flying to Detroit from Kansas City. He took a run that flew out of uh, Miami down into South America, and a lot of it was night overnight flights. So he was making more money, but he also had a commute to Miami before he could take his flight. So you can see he was gone more. Right. Well, that was at a particular time of things really being tested out at home. And I was not viewed with the same kind of authority as the male in the house. What are you asking God at this time? Her husband's trying to make more money because the family's growing. He's getting commuted. So he's gone longer and you're by yourself, or at least it feels like you're by yourself trying to raise two boys that are hormonal. I remember my boys, they get that testosterone flowing, you know, they get puffed up on you. They're not afraid to get in your face. What are you asking God for? At that point, Sherry, I can remember coming to the dinner table and baby Christy and little Shannon and then the older boys and David. And I can remember thinking to myself, Lord, we did this because we wanted to give love. And I'm not feeling that. I'm feeling like this is destroying the fabric of my marriage and my family. There was so much chaos 
and it was so constant when David was gone. The minute he'd close the door, the testing would begin. I journaled all the things that led from point A to Z before he got home, because it would trigger like that. One little incident would raise up the level of intensity to the next thing they tried, to the next thing they tried. Both of the children um, were very well-trained at lying. They could look at you straight in the eyes and lie as if it were truth. Survival skill. Yeah, it was. It truly was. But interestingly, when my husband would come home, he would sit down at the kitchen table with the two of them and he would say, well, tell me about how when you did such and such. And they would just open up like like it was no big deal. He would confess and they would talk about it and everything was cool. But it wasn't so cool for me. So I really was questioning. I knew what our motives were. I told you how excited I was even thinking about the fact there was a child out there that needed us and what we had to offer, not only in a loving Christian family, but also the environment we had to provide for them. Living in the country is a healthy place for kids that have issues. There's chores to do, there's places to go, lots of activity, and we'd go horseback riding and have picnics as a family, lots of good things. And yet there was all of this upheaval. And I knew it was affecting our our little ones. And and I felt at such a loss to provide for them the security of a loving home that we had had when we brought them home. And now we have all this emotional climate of warfare going on. Uh, That's not a good way to raise little kids. So I felt like we were hurting them as well. So I was crying out to the Lord. I really was. This is the early to mid 70s, as you said a few minutes ago. What are they doing to train you as parents? Because today they have trauma training. They have all different resources. But what were they doing then to train you? Not much. I had the words of the pediatrician who said, if their first five years are somewhat intact, then they will be okay." We didn't really know how intact those first five years were. We knew what the traumas were and the dads were missing and then the alcoholism on top of that. But we didn't have much security that they had any normal first five years. And so what they now call the attachment syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now they have discovered that if children don't have the ability to make those bonding attachments with their parents, early on that sometimes that never rebuilds and it's like a broken piece in the brain and the emotions and they they don't know how to connect you can offer love and offer love and offer love but they don't know how to attach to that because they never had any primary attachments with their own what are some of the things you're doing to get through? Do you even have time to be in the Bible? Because you have, at this point, four children. And so you've got a lot on your hands. Your husband's traveling. What are you doing to maintain your sanity or your connection with God? Because clearly connection is key if it has that type of impact on a child, where if they never make that attachment, then it is broken until maybe trauma training comes in. Now, maybe that helps. I don't know about today, but. Or a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> I kept a praying for you're a right. miracle yeah, yes, right. for God's healing. We did see some of that. We made 
great strides. God doesn't waste anything, as you know. Mm-hmm. When you think you're doing God's will, when you already have loving, nurturing desires, I'd always wanted a big family. Sherry, I'd always wanted one. I had an aunt and uncle who had five children. That was my ideal. I didn't get to five. Four broke me, but okay. four took me to my knees in a That's new good. way. Yeah, and my yeah. husband as well. We move into a place of, okay, Lord, we, we know we're in way too deep and we cannot do this in our own strength. So that moves you from a being a believer into letting him becoming the Lord of your life. And that was a momentous shift for us. And so good things happened for us spiritually. We grew deeper, spending a lot of time talking to the Lord. We had a big fireplace and I would light the fire and sit there and pray and read and try to keep myself together. Because I did remember the pediatrician said, if you're okay, they'll be okay. So that was sort of a daunting memo because that there was that night that I told you about at the dinner table when I thought this is not this is not what I bargained for. It's destroying my family. I ran upstairs. I didn't even eat that meal. I ran upstairs and bawled my head out. My husband <clears throat> could tell that <laughs> things were not going well, and so he let. Um, the little ones and I go visit a friend, uh, a college friend, and we went away for a week weekend. But that undid me because I thought if I can't handle, then that means the whole thing goes down. So it was hard for you to accept help? Yes. And I think the hardest part was getting the help we needed. We did. These were the strategies we were using because we knew we were in too deep. So the boys were seeing our pastor, who was really a sweet old Swedish man. He was a Lutheran pastor, and he loved our family, and he loved those boys. And he tried to do some counseling, but I doubt he was very well trained in any of this. The other key is, at that particular time, there was very little said, done, or written about the genetic qualities of this whole thing, this chemistry with with the alcoholism, the alcoholic syndromes that it, that are established, the emotional distortions that come when kids grow up in alcoholic abusive homes. Um, that's the whole codependency thing. There are a lot of emotional triggers that get built into that scenario where kids don't know. They can't depend on anyone. They don't know where their food's coming from. They don't know whether somebody's going to whack them upside of the head. They don't know whether somebody's going to yell, scream, or love on them. That creates behavior that is not healthy. So, we didn't understand that psychology. We also didn't understand that these boys would likely carry the genetic traits of alcoholism that bore out later in their teen and young adult lives. None of that was written about. We did have a little psychological family clinic, if you will. We would all march in and and we would be counseled as a family, a family group. 
Sometimes they would just see the kids. Sometimes they would just see us as adults. But then I can also remember they wanted to have everybody all together sitting there and the little kids would play on the floor and we would have dynamic conversations. <laughs> dynamic. Did it do any good? I, I was don't getting ready to ask so. you, did it do any good? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a trial and error issue for everyone, really, but you're in the hot seat of trying to get it right, of feeling the pressure to get it right, of feeling the burden to give these children a breakthrough into what we would consider a, a good life where they're mentally healthy. Because I think the mental health is really the crux or the crossroad of what what needs to heal. Yeah. What was some of your successes? Some of our successes were, I suppose, this, this sounds very negative. <clears throat> well, I guess I'll start with, with the faith piece. Um, both of the boys accepted Christ through Youth oh, for wow. Christ. We had an operating um, group of Youth for Christ people. There was a ministry then in Lawrence. And the boys went on a, a, a ski trip with our church. They'd accepted the Lord. I can remember them relaying it and talking about it. But I think the thing was so hard because you have these other deficits going on. And so the faith was in motion and that was positive and we were all on the same page and that was good. But then you have all the behavior and the patterns and the habits. If you stop and think, when you take a little infant, your own or adopted, either one, you're training, you're, you're shaping, you're molding behavior day by day. So it's kind of like drip, drip, drip with the raindrops. When you take a 12-year-old, no matter what kind of a past they have, but if they have a troubled past, which most likely they would, or they wouldn't be for, up for adoption at age 12. Right. So you have the garbage from the past and you have no time because they're turning into teenagers momentarily. And so you feel like you're sandblasting all your values. The difference is so gentle with the little ones and so intense with the older ones that you want them to get it. You want them to have it. You want them to, to have those victories. And the victories were few. I, I'm, I'm being totally honest. I'm not saying that that we didn't have any, that we didn't have loving times, that we didn't have fun moments as a family. We did. And you've had some years to reflect now because your children are grown at this point and they have their own families. So when you look back, was God working? Here's why I'm asking this question. I often put my eyes on what God's doing in the immediate moment. And if I don't see anything changing, I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord, where are you? Why are you not? Why is this not working type thing? But in fact, he is working. Is there anything that if you look back and reflect now, you're like, you know what? He was working and I just was too much in the middle of it to see it. Well, let me say this. Larry, the, old, the first adoptee, I believe is in heaven. He had a massive heart attack in his early 40s, which is highly unusual. There's a wife and three children. And they were, of course, all impacted in a devastating way with that. We were in touch as families would be. They, they had lived out here for a while, and then they moved back to Colorado. And so we would go out and visit them and so forth. But I knew that God wanted me to speak 
at his memorial service. And now that's the big picture because we went from the rubbish of all the troubled years of adoption to watching him become a man, get married, struggle with alcoholism himself, overcome that battle. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that he had trusted Christ as an adult as well. He'd gone through some counseling and lo and behold, we discovered that Larry had had some sexual abuse as a child, along with everything else, and didn't know that till he was in his mid-30s and he was going through counseling and his wife told me. So all of that's part of this big picture. So I know God was working and I was able to testify to his overcoming mm. so many things. I'm not fond of public speaking. <laughs> it's not my best forte. I'd rather write things out. But as I was flying out there with my husband, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that that testimony needed to be told. The overcomer story never gets old to me because hmm. I think that's what you know Christ did for us. And that's when we overcome our struggles, our brokenness. That's the beauty of the relationship with Christ. So it was so nice that you were able to share that with the people who were there. I had a number of people come up to me afterwards and really thank me for sort of pulling back the the covers because he didn't talk about it. So not only was he saved, he had overcome his own battle with the genetic link to the alcoholism that he had grown up with. Larry even had something else to happen that shook the faith around your family that had to do with your husband. He took a job that he thought was going to work for him after he had uh, stepped out of ministry. We moved from Kansas to the Tidewater area, Hampton Roads, and we'd only been out here about a year. Then it was within the following year that things became a little weird at home, and David was pulling away emotionally. I could not figure out what was going on because he was becoming detached and David and I had started dating when we were 15 and 16, so I knew him well. He'd always been my number one, my only one. And so when I could tell he was emotionally detaching, I, I knew he was depressed because we were, we were struggling financially. Once we got out here, our house hadn't sold back in Kansas. A lot of things hadn't played out the way we expected to. So I knew he was struggling, but I didn't know the reasons why. But there was a woman involved and somebody who he had met at, at the office, a secretary, and she was 14 years younger. And so the next thing I know is he's starting his own office and this woman is going with him to be his right-hand person in his new office. And so things got a little iffy and sketchy and then there was a confrontation and then he left. How old was Larry then? Probably in his late 20s. He's 10 years older than Shannon. Okay. So and Shannon, Shannon was probably 18, 19. And where's Wiley? Wiley had stayed in Colorado. And the last time we saw Wiley actually was he'd ridden his motorcycle back to Kansas to see us before we moved out to Virginia. Larry told me later in his little apartment in Norfolk, he said he had dreamed that his dad was having an affair. And so he was. That was very hard for him because his words were, we want to move out 
to where you are so that we can grow our family as a good Christian family, because I know that you're our role models. So suddenly the head of the household that had been the role model had just uh, sort of dumped on everything that we believed. <laughs> Having an affair, a younger woman left the family. All the years he flew as an airline pilot, I never imagined unfaithfulness, even if there had been an opportunity, and I'm sure there were many, I never would have believed that could have happened. And uh, now all of a sudden, it's for real. And Larry has to look at that as well. The reason we're focusing on Larry is because the younger children sound well-adjusted, not that divorce of any age of your parents is a good thing, but Larry being the overcomer and having to having his background that he has and then having to face this, which he finally gets some solid ground because I'm sure it took years for him to trust the fact that you guys were actually who you said you were. And now David yeah. leaves you for someone who's 14 years younger. Right. It was very difficult for him because I do think he saw us as his hope for stability. And we were the one good thing in life that he could sort of lean into. Did you feel like all that you poured out and tried to make a difference in, do you feel like you ever made a difference? I do in Larry's life. In Wiley's life, I'm not sure. He was the quiet one, you know. He was the one that I I have no relationship with him now. I sent him a birthday card, never heard anything back. Don't know if he even got the present. There was no nobody at that address kind of thing. And we couldn't find him. When Larry moved back to Colorado, he tried to find him because they were pretty close. They had bonded in their own similarities and the things that they had in common, shared in common. I actually did a search for Wiley not too long ago and um, came up with an address. My daughter has mixed views I, I would say negative views about me reaching out and trying to incorporate them back in. She was very good about me traveling to see Larry's family, sending gifts, all of that sharing because my daughter was sexually abused by Larry. And that's why I brought in the piece that he had been sexually abused as a young child. And often that behavior repeats also. We didn't know that. Nobody ever told us that. We didn't know there'd been any any issue with that. And we were very naive. I mean, who would imagine she was only five years old? I mean, it made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff under all this. Do I think I made a difference? I can look at his family today. His wife is a believer. I believe he's in heaven. My daughter would say it was a terrible mistake. I was hoping our legacy would be our giving hearts are opening our home, our hospitality to include those that had less than we did. I was hoping that's what would stick. But unfortunately, because of my daughter's experience, she just bottom lines it. Mom, that was a terrible mistake. (laughs) So where I go with this, Sherry, is to tell people that if, if they feel the longing in their hearts and the compassion for older children who need homes, and not every story will go like ours did. I realize that. Some are much more adjusted and all happily ever after. But, but I will say, make sure that the children you adopt are younger than the children you have already begun raising. 
because I think if Shannon and Christy had been the oldest, they could have become role models. They wouldn't have been likely to become victims of any of the fallout from Larry and Wiley's ruptured past. That's important. Yeah. So it just sounds like there was a lot of training that was missing, a lot of talking about sexual assault, talking about the way that the boundaries you can set, the things you need to be aware of, the things you need to look for. That alone would have been so helpful. It would have saved your daughter from Mm -hmm. all that she dealt with or deals with that comes along with something like that. So I can understand her particular viewpoint as far as saying, yeah, this didn't work for me, mom. Yeah. Well, the um, interesting thing is nobody talked about sexual abuse back then. I mean, I I was so naive, Sherry. I just never imagined that anything like that would happen. I think that's fair to say that, that you wouldn't imagine that it would happen when you don't know. Nobody's talking about sexual assault. Nobody has a way to equip you. Your counselors at school don't know what to do. Your pastors aren't necessarily trained. So everybody's trying to help with their heart. But I think there's some practicality that needs to be brought into that situation as well. Today, people are much more aware. We, I mean, obviously, we live in a more sexualized culture today than we did then. So I think that was also true that why we were blindsided. I mean, we honestly didn't know anything about Larry's intrusion on, on our five-year-old's life. The scary part of that was, Sherry, that he threatened to tell to to kill her if she told us so that shut down a little part of her heart that was probably the worst part of that whole experience because it was short-lived i mean i know one one experience can be a horrible thing on your life but it was it was a short-lived period of time we've got it all figured out now what happened and when but it was the closing of her heart from her mom and her dad oh my goodness that's that's atrocious. So she was senior in college before we knew. What has God done for you through this? Because God doesn't waste anything. But when I listen to the fact that Larry has passed, although he passed believing in Christ and Wiley, you don't know where he's at right now. What burden does that put on your heart? And how has God given you relief for that? I think I think I take comfort in knowing that our motives we're, we're pure. I really do believe that. We felt that God had positioned us and allowed us the opportunity, despite our infertility, he was using us to bless these children, not just the babies that were perfectly wonderful, but children that had greater needs than that. I don't feel like a failure. I feel like we poured out every ounce that we had to give emotionally, financially, physically. The only regrets I have is that we didn't have more knowledge. True. I wish that we had had more knowledge. And so that's why I'm talking now, because I want other people to have more knowledge. I believe that when you see a family like this, that's trying to do something with potentially difficult situations, if there had been some other families that had come alongside of us and offered some relief. Was there ever at any point where you had to come to grips with some bitterness about what you were going through and 
find peace with that? And if so, how did you do that? I don't know that I really camped on bitterness. I think I was just so greatly challenged that I, I just kept seeking answers and praying for the Lord to show us what to do next. We made a family move when the boys were 16 to California, and my husband went to Bible school out there during that next couple of years. And that seemed to sort of change everything for a little while. Did it solve all the problems? No. That's when they decided um, to do some things <laughs> that that reshaped their lives. Larry got in trouble with the law and lots of stuff. Well, there's just some things that only God can reach. So if you're opening the door to God, given that conversation, you said Larry accepted Christ, professed him. What more can one do? Well, if if you step back and get the big picture, potentially his entire family of five will be in heaven. That that's, that's a yay. <laughs> That's a right. praise God. Celebration? Yes, that is a right. celebration. Wiley did accept the Lord where he is at the moment. I don't know. What did God give you through this process? Because <laughs> he's always working with us. Yes, he certainly is. He showed us that we were incapable of doing such a thing on our own. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> Humility came. Oh, my word. I don't know when I've ever felt so helpless. I had the education degree. I'd worked with kids. I love kids. I thought I understood children. I thought I was Wonder Woman mom. And I just found so much that I didn't know. And so when you find yourself going, hmm, I can't do this by myself, and you have a faith in God, you know where you have to go. Yeah. He was my all in all. He became the Lord of my life. We human beings were incapable of producing this uh, fruit that we so badly wanted to see. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been wonderful had we adopted these children and they all went to, to high school and college and went on to have nice jobs and families and everything was all smooth. Even when I was single and starting to date again, I told myself, nobody's ever going to buy into this. I had grandchildren when I was 42, eventually found a wonderful person who, who could put up with all the contingencies of my life, <laughs> teenagers, and, uh, grandbabies, uh, grandbabies, and people that didn't speak like we do. <laughs> uh, well, he sounds super sweet. I'm happy for you. Listening to you share this, it struck me, and this is just symbolism because there's no real comparison to who God is when we talk about us. Your heart was to give these children a good home, and you, you know, made sure that the surroundings were a playground, really, that children would love. And you get tried to give them everything they wanted, but yet they would not, or maybe could not, overcome their their brokenness. Even though you kept sending an olive branch, you kept offering these gifts, you kept drawing them to you, and it makes me think of God's heart for us, and He's constantly drawing. For us, and yet we just do not, will not, cannot lay down our brokenness in order to receive that olive branch, to receive those pearls over bubblegum machine 
you know, jewelry. I wonder, did God show you anything in that as far as between your relationship with him, how he sees you? I think that's a, a, nice, a nice parallel, a nice analogy. Not that I would be on the level of God with his heart, but thank you for making the comparison. But I think for me, it was a matter of everything for me. <laughs> All the losses in my life have come back to relinquishing, letting go. When I let go, when I relinquish, when I release my, my loved ones, my precious ones, even the, the fact that it breaks my heart that my daughter was ever touched in any way that would hurt her or, or made to fear, any of that breaks my heart. But I have to release it. And when I, would, when I do, then I know that it's his, not mine. And when it's his, then I can have peace. And so that's how I've been able to manage, if you will, the disappointments. When we had great expectations, I wish I had a really great expectation-filling story. But this, the spiritual part is true. It, it definitely took me to a different level of, of trust and faith in God. I mean, I can't think of anything more precious to me than either of those babies we brought home. But my my little girl, I mean, the most vulnerable, you see the boys, you know, little rough, tough little guys. My baby girl. Oh, my gosh. When we start messing with the baby girl, <laughs> that's big stuff. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You're telling us to take our eyes off of ourselves. And put them on God, give him the burden. And we get to sit in the peace of knowing that he loves us. Even if we fell short, even if trying to be a parent, we didn't hit the mark. We still have somewhere to take that pain and that anguish and that disappointment or bitterness so that we don't stay stuck there so that we don't become known for our bitterness or our disappointments. So it's that submitting the things that happen to us, submitting ourselves to God's sovereignty. And that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you, Joan, so much. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.